Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 71, The Princess Bride Movie Review. Brian here, along with Yancey. As always, this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. I'm representing Generation X, and the millennial is Yancey. What's going on, my friend? Present. What's up, Chris? <laughs> oh, man, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How about you? Uh, just the same the same old stuff, man, every single day. I'm trying to make your editing process easy tonight, so I, I'll abstain from the profanity. But uh, just another <laughs> just another difficult day as a middle manager and you know, a brick-and-mortar retail store. But I'm honestly happy to do the, the show tonight. I'm happy Good. that uh, we're, we're kind of getting back on a, you know, a, a, a normal schedule. We, we recorded last week. We're recording this week. It's just uh, the continuity is back, getting back into the flow of things. It feels pretty good. What about you? Oh, man, I love, you know what, I, I love doing this show. I love doing it with you. I'm sitting here having having a nice cold beverage and talking to my friend about uh, pop culture. What could be better? I want to mention, mm-hmm. if anyone wants to reach out to us on tw- Twitter, you can reach us at Yancey Eaton or at C. McBrien. Or, of course, you can always go to popgoesyourworld.com. Find all of our contact information there. Um, for me... I wanted to touch base on a TV show. So as you know, I'm trying to do more and more kind of millennial type shows, you know, into my life. And so one of the ones that I started watching, I didn't watch it right from the beginning, but I was watching The Walking Dead. So my wife and I would watch it like every week, right? And we got really okay. into it and watching the show. And it's really great. And I don't know how anyone feels about this. So I just kind of kind of threw it out there. I was really into it. Like season one was so good. And then season two, watch it. And then there's like the governor and season three and all that stuff. And it's really, really cool watching it. And then... What they do is like a lot of shows, Lost started doing this back, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, where they would do a mid-season hiatus. Like they do like six or seven episodes and then take a break and then come back. And The Walking Dead does this, I think, pretty much every year that I've watched it. And the interesting thing is, I don't know if you watch a show, we'll talk about that in a second, but we got to the hiatus, I guess, and then it came back and both my wife and I didn't even really even noticed that it came back. And then we kind of talked and we're like, oh yeah, Walking Dead's supposed to be back. And I go and look it up online and I find out there's like seven episodes that we missed. And we both looked at each other and said, uh, I really don't care. I don't want to watch this show anymore. <laughs> we just both just have lost interest in the show. So it's just, it's kind of sad because it's a show that we, it was like appointment viewing for us. Every week we'd watch The Walking Dead and we liked it so much. And now mm-hmm. we just don't even care anymore. So I've, I don't know how anyone else feels. I've completely lost all interest in The Walking Dead. And that's too bad because I used to like that show a lot. Well, I mean, I, like you, I also used to watch it and uh, it was kind of appointment viewing too where I was a little late, but then I, I caught up and, uh, you know, I was just waiting like oh my god i cannot wait for the walking dead and i was watching the the talking dead show afterwards oh yeah we did that commentary and fan theories and all this stuff and like you said i I thought the first season was extremely good i thought the premise was really cool uh you know obviously the zombies look fantastic and there was just a there was a ton of hype and like buzz around the show and very quickly after i think i got to season three i just realized like i don't care like i literally do not care this is the most like unredeeming um, you know, it's just the same stuff over and over again. Like how many times can a person be killed by a zombie and in how many different creative ways? Like that essentially what became what the show was about as they, you know, slowly started killing off characters. And, um, you know, I'm not going to give any spoilers or anything like that, but I checked that after season three and, um, it's just like, it's the most unredeeming. Like I said, there's, there's no, uh, there's, there's no payoff for me watching that show. It's literally just like, Hey, let's watch people die. And, uh, the writing kind of took like a serious hit. It just, it stopped making sense. And I stopped caring, but I mean, good on you for at least trying. Yeah. I will say this because I always chime in with my gen X take on things. So here's the thing. If you watched the walkie dead, kind of like you, you know, if you watched the walkie dead and kind of gave up on it and, I would like to steer you toward a Gen X thing that is a zombie movie that is like a bazillion times better than The Walking Dead. And that is Night of the Living Dead from 1968. George A. Romero's first film was Night of the Living Dead, black and white movie, low budget, made it on about 30 grand outside of Pittsburgh. Man, oh man, is it good. It might be a little shocking if you were to watch it today as a millennial because you're so used to you know the blood and the gore and you know the special effects and and all the the complex storylines and stuff that are going on with the walking dead this is very 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 simplistic you know for whatever for whatever reason we it never is actually ever established in the movie 
people start rising from the graves and as zombies and start going around and these people get trapped in a farmhouse. And the whole premise of the movie is, is that the battles aren't with the zombies as much as they are with the people inside the house. And it's just a, a wonderful premise. And like I say, low budget, you know, black humor in it and stuff like that. But, oh, God, is that good? So I would implore anybody that has watched The Walking Dead and gotten sick of it, like yourself, and maybe I'll make you do this on a future podcast because that's what we do around here. But go and watch Night of the Living Dead from 1968, George A. Romero's classic. And I think you'll be uh, you'll be really happy with it. I hope, you know, or anyway, think I'm crazy. I don't know. But anyway, uh, you want to get to our movie here, Yancey? Yeah, man, let's do it. All right, here we go. I didn't see it back in 1984, obviously, because I wasn't porn. There was basically one way for young teenage boys to see boobs. Oh, my. Chris, this is a hard endorse. Millennials can see boobs whenever they want. My least favorite movie that you have recommended for me to watch. The Love Boat. A movie that did not age particularly well. Back in the 70s and 80s, you know, Yancey. Frontal nudity. There was not the same level of grooming and hygiene that exists now. <laughs> or topless women. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's my uncle up there. I am so proud of you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I think maybe I should try and watch a millennial show. Okay, so this week I made you watch a Gen X, you know, classic, I guess, for lack of a better term, and that is 1987's The Princess Bride. So you had, I've quoted it many times, we were talking about it on the show previously, and you were like, I've never seen that movie. So I said, okay, you got to watch it. So I finally made you watch it. And one of the best things about this podcast, Yancey, is the fact that um, you get to watch lots of things that you never did see, and I get to watch lots of things from your generation I've never seen. So uh, I made you watch The Princess Bride. What are your first takeaways on it? Um, I really enjoyed it a lot and I'm trying to think of just really clever ways to describe how much I enjoyed it. It, um, it flew by, I think it was like an hour and 40 minutes of, uh, of, of runtime, but man, it was a really just, I was just so into it. I'm like, I'm, I'm speaking in such a simplistic way because like I was just in awe of how much I enjoyed it and how simple it was, how simple the characters were. Um, but how really clever and just poignant the dialogue was between them, like how believable the love story itself was just I I was almost like blown away. Like as soon as the movie was over, I'm like, wow, that was almost like a like a tour de force where like the the acting and the dialogue was at the it was the most important thing in the entire, you know, everything else was just background noise, you know, and it was obviously a love story between two main characters. But all of the complimentary pieces to it just worked so well. It was I was really blown away. I've this is one of those films where I have heard it referenced a million times and I've heard, you know, uh, you killed my father, prepare to die. Like right, I've right, yeah. I've heard that, you know, countless times. And I've even seen the reference in other you know pieces of pop culture. And I didn't know what it was from and so many different other lines in this movie. And then, like, just my brain just constantly turning over and over again as it, it was just a really charming, endearing movie that I was not expecting to enjoy nearly as much as I did. Yeah, I agree. I think charming comes to mind when I think of it. First of all, I'm really, really good. I just want to start off by saying I'm really glad that you like this movie because I had talked to some other friends uh, behind the scenes before we went to this show. And I said, if I and I said this to my wife tonight, too, I said, if I go on the air tonight with Yancey and he says he doesn't like The Princess Bride, we're breaking up. It's over. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> but I'm really glad because the thing is, I do believe that it is a very, very charming film. I think as far as I'm concerned, this movie has something for everyone. And I think that's what I like about it. Like if you want monsters, you got it. You want sword play, you got it. You want action, it's in there. You want humor, totally there. And you want a love story like you mentioned, you got it. And and it's so funny like you said the love story is the kind of like the sort of what grounds the whole movie, right? And right. and and why does it work so well? Of course cuz it's true love. You think this happens every day, you know, is like a line from the movie, right? Um, like that's enough just because yeah. that's the explanation because it's true love, of course. You it's know? true love. Like even when he gets to Miracle Max, it's like, why should I save this guy? Why Why should I? True love. Remember when he, he puts the, the bellows in his mouth and it's like true love. Oh, is he saying true laugh? True laugh. No, it's true. And his wife comes out. It's true love. You got to save him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> true love doesn't happen every day. <laughs> it's just yeah. so cool. Um I one of my okay so you you sort of described it as the backdrop of the movie was the love story but you mm -hmm. know what I loved about this movie the fact that to me the backdrop of the movie is a grandfather reading a story to his grandson and I think it's just perfect because as I was mentioning to you on a previous show I watched this movie with my son and his reaction mirrored Fred Savage because you know we start watching the movie and he's like 
oh, this is all about kissing. This is like a love story. It was exactly like the, like a little kid in the story, right? And then the sh- there's the shrieking eagles and the swords and there's fighting in the fire swamp and quicksand and on and on and on. And, you know, then he really started to come around. There is a lot to like in this movie. Like I said, I think there's something for everyone. And I think if you watch this movie and you come away from it kind of with a feeling like, well, there wasn't really in that anything in that movie for me, then I just don't think you're watching it close enough. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there's something for everybody in this movie. I I, I completely agree. I, <laughs> Namely, let, let's jump right into it and just start talking about Robin Wright for just a second. Okay. Yes. Obviously, Robin Wright is... I think it's her first in, movie, wasn't it? Uh, I don't even know that, to be honest with you. All I know is that... You know, she's played a lot of different roles. She was, you know, uh, most famously probably, I think, in House of Cards, as far as like recent films, she was in Wonder Woman, um, you know, uh, like a really strong female character kind of thing. It's really like I'm trying to talk about I I wrote notes tonight basically saying, like, I'm going to give her a lot of credit for her acting and how well she plays this part and how she's able to emanate like, uh, you know, being vulnerable and being strong and like kudos to the writers in this movie for being able to like to develop her character so quickly like that whole love story was basically a montage that lasted like two or three minutes that gives you the whole setup of the entire relationship between the two of them and they just they throw it at you in just a matter of minutes and and you're instantly caring about it i instantly care about it we're invested in like it's a believable romance between the two of them and robin wright sells it so well and i'm not just trying to talk about her physical appearance but Good Lord, is she one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen in my life in this film. I've never seen a movie with her that age, which is, you know, I assume was in in her 20s at some point, you know, roughly around my age. Breathtakingly beautiful and absolutely sells it on on camera. Like she she looks like a princess. She acts like an absolute I, I don't know how else to explain it. Like I'm a little just like awestruck of like how much she captivated the the screen and then hearing stuff about how she was actually like a like one of the last people to actually take on the part like one of the last people to join the film it was really crazy because there's so many different pieces to this where you heard like oh this actor was going to take this part or this person or this was our fourth or fifth choice and just how it all comes together and every single character works um i mean what do you think of robin wright as kind of like the lead in this and i i mean i I can't think of a single critique that i had of hers i thought her whole performance was just absolutely incredible I, i gotta agree with you so i think she was so she was 21 years old when she did this movie it was really her first movie role she was in hollywood vice squad before that really small part um so this was her movie you know debut for all intents and purposes and yeah she was just perfect like she was she brought everything like like, this is the thing is that what what takes a movie to a different level are the performances of the actors and, and what they put into the roles. And 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 we've talked about that before. Like, we talked about Contact last week. I, one of the things I didn't like about it was I felt it was miscast. I didn't think those actors were right for those roles. Whereas in this movie, every single character, right down to the smallest bit part, are all absolutely brilliantly cast. Like, mm-hmm. they, every character in this movie is brilliantly cast, starting with um, with her. So, she, you're right, she's absolutely beautiful but she's vulnerable but she's strong she's not mm-hmm. your typical just damsel in distress to like like she has a lot of vulnerability and she believes in true love you yeah, know and just to inter- just life. interject but yeah. like, like like i said to interject with with no backstory whatsoever she is a fully developed character like like you said strong but also like extremely vulnerable like like you get all these different sides to her like you see like as they're walking through the what was it the fire swamp or yeah, the whatever fire swamp, it's called yeah. Like the looks that she gives him as he's being like, you know, he has like this false bravado, like this, like this cockiness, this air to him. Just the looks that she gives him that says like, okay, like, yes, you know, you're my true love, but you're also like annoying the piss out of me. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like she's just all the characters are so developed. Like, remember when we watched we we reviewed Indiana Jones together and I did like the film, but like I was a little critical. I'm sorry. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones and. Uh, whatever no, Raiders of the Lost no, Ark. That's later. That's 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 millennial <laughs> crap. It's Raiders it of the, the Lost Ark. That's okay. that whole Star Wars Episode Four crap creeping in from the millennials. Okay. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Fair enough. Ark. Fair anyway. enough. We're not gonna, we're not going to talk I'm about an, it all. Time. I'm an old man yelling at a cloud. Just leave me alone. <laughs> right. But like you know, I, I was able to say I liked elements of that film. I liked certain actors, but like there were there were parts in the casting where like it was such a distraction to me that I was. I was almost like pulled away from the movie. Whereas with this, I I fell in love with every single character individually, and I was just transfixed by it. And just the way that they they pace this this movie, how they set it up so quickly, so that you can actually get into the development and actually start pushing the plot along. And there's not like this whole 
this you know unnecessary buildup. I just thought it was really, really well done. Yep, right from the get go, it starts off. You know, yeah, like you said, it's almost done in montage form. That you know, she falls in love with Wesley, and then he is you know taken away and killed by the the dread pirate Roberts. And it's like right from the get go, and she's like, "I'll never love again." And it just sets up the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I. My big takeaway from this movie is that I, and we do this a lot, like both me and you, and I think people in general, we tend to put movies into categories, right? You got a romantic comedy, there's an action movie, you know, horror movies, historical dramas, fantasy film, love stories even. But this movie is all of them rolled into one. And and very rarely do you find that. Like, movies are made in particular genres. They just are. And you don't have too much crossover you know you see some dramedies and stuff like that but this movie like i said it goes back to what i said there's something for everyone because it's all the movie genres rolled into one like never before i don't think there even has ever been done since quite in quite the same way you know and that's one of the things that i I think i like about the movie so much but uh, yeah to go back to your part some of the casting in it oh my gosh so good so some of these characters and it's really hard for me i think this this movie is one of the toughest movies for me to actually nail it down and go that's my favorite character mm-hmm. you know like because i would say well inigo montoya that's my favorite character well actually hold on a second uh Vizzini's my favorite character man he's funny oh wait a minute no fez expert oh it's so hard they're all so so good miracle max is so like Ah, they're just all so good. So I don't know, is it possible for you to come away and say there was one character you liked better than any others or one that you related to the most or just really enjoyed? I I can't I can't remember. I, I've only seen the film once, obviously. But what's the character like the main at the beginning? There's the three of them, Andre the Giant. Yeah. Um, so Andre, and the, Andre the Giant is Fezzik. OK, Fezzik, right. And then Vizzini is the short little Wallace Shawn, who's like the, okay. the smart guy, you know. Yes. And then there's Inigo Montoya. Okay, I, I I like all of them individually, like you said. I think I Andre the Giant uh, a little bit. There, there are times whenever his dialogue is is almost and it's not discernible to me. I can't understand what he's saying, but it doesn't really matter. Like, and it's I sorry, think he's, just to jump in. That's so funny you say that because because when he speaks, his speaking voice is very hard to understand him. Right with his accent, you know, he's got that heavy accent and plus, but he's just such a yeah. big man, right? So it was funny. Just as a little side story, when 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 they got when they cast him in the movie. Um, Rob, they, Rob Reiner would, would like have him read and didn't understand a friggin' word he was saying. Like, he's like, I can't, I can't put this guy in my movie. You can't understand what he's saying. So Rob Reiner s- slowly sp- like said all of his lines into a tape recorder and gave it to him and made him learn them all phonetically. And that's how he was able to learn and be able to speak, you know, the parts. And even still, it was hard to understand him, you know, as you're saying. Well, at least there was a real effort there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You got to give the guy credit. Like, exactly. I, I was looking up a little bit for him uh, just as, like, research for the show. And, like, he was born in France, but, like, I think his parents were, like, Polish and, like, Slovakian. So, like, you know, there's a lot of Eastern Europeanism in there that's going to be really hard to kind of, like, flesh out that, you know, t- to not have that overbearing accent. But right. um, I, I, the original point I was going to make was just talking about Wallace Shawn's character, Vizzini. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's so so good he's so obnoxious but he's so perfectly obnoxious you know what i mean like and i and i think i think i I always like to place myself in movies or i like to make the movies kind of uh, a representation of people i know in real life i do this with books too like every single book i've ever read which is a lot um is I, i i have to I have to make the main characters people that I know. And I, I know I know Vizzini's character. I know those people like in real life. I the right. one <laughs> the one line that I thought was probably my favorite line in the entire film was when he's talking about like uh yeah, you ever heard of Plato or <laughs> That's uh, one of my favorite lines. Yeah. <laughs> Morons. Like that <laughs> I by, love by it, calling yeah. them, you know, the greatest thinkers of, you know, the the time or of the last however many hundreds of years just by calling them morons is supposed to like elicit this strong like feeling that oh yeah he called them morons so thus he must be extremely intelligent you right. know what i mean like <laughs> exactly. the guy is just so in his head i thought it was just such a perfect like character i just he i mean he's easily my favorite but uh like you said each one of them individually i think kind of stands on their own merits so, so funny like wallace sean because originally rob reiner wanted danny devito to play the part, right? I, I could see it, okay. and and it was so funny. Like he wanted Danny DeVito, you know, you know, and then he got and so Wallace Shawn obviously found this out, you know, during shooting, he found out that Reiner wanted Danny DeVito originally, and it made Wallace Shawn like just 
super like nervous, right? It just made him paranoid because he just thought, oh my God, if I don't do this right, I'm going to get fired, right? They're, they're going to fire me. They're going to bring in Danny DeVito to finish this part. Like, because at the time, Danny, well, he still is, but Danny DeVito was a really big name at the time, right? You know, um, and Wallace Shawn was really only known for my dinner with Andre. That was it. I mean, like he had small parts in Manhattan and starting over and all that jazz movies like that, but they were just like little bit parts. Right. But Danny DeVito was like really famous from his role in Taxi. Right. So like I say, Wallace Shawn, it was just so nervous doing this. But and maybe some of that nervousness came out, you know, in his performance somehow, because he was that jittery kind of like, you know, like, no, there's something about his performance. I agree with you. It's just, he's so funny. In every scene he's in, he just, it's just like he's just chewing up the scenery. You know, like, he's yep. so, so, this little I, tiny I short like, guy. Like, oh. When his character, uh, you know, spoiler alert, obviously, whenever his character does die after drinking the poison, <laughs> the poison I was so the sad. Came, yeah. Like, I really wanted him to be in the movie more just because I thought he was, you know, he's he's a, he's a quirky little weirdo, but he was a really, really endearing character. <laughs> so funny when he dies and he's like and he's laughing <laughs> and it just falls over. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's so good. So many, so many good characters. Um, going back to Andre the Giant for a second because you mentioned him because I just yeah, want to sure. put things in perspective because as a millennial, maybe you don't always understand kind of the time in which things are done. Now, I, to put things in perspective for you, I saw this movie in the theater, okay? So I went to see this movie in the theater and I just loved it right from the get-go. So at the time when it came out in 1987, like, and it still is, I get it, but wrestling was like the biggest thing going. WWF wrestling was like massively huge. Like, you got to think about it. This is the, earlier in 1987, um, WrestleMania three took place. And I'm sure even as a millennial, you probably know about a little bit about WrestleMania three or you've heard about it or whatever. And that if just to, as a refresher, Yancey, WrestleMania three is one where Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan wrestled, right? And Hulk Hogan picked up and body slammed. Andre the Giant. And it was like at the Pontiac Silverdome and there was like, you know, 80,000 people there. It was just like the greatest thing, right? So at the time, obviously, Andre the Giant's a wrestler. But not only that, like Andre the Giant was a bad guy. And I don't know, do they still have that in wrestling where they have like good guys and bad guys? I haven't watched it in years. I don't know if you're you asking. You are asking the wrong person. Okay. <laughs> anybody, anybody that's listening, then send me a tweet at C. McBrien and let me know. Do, does wrestling still have good guys and bad guys? I don't know. I don't watch it. But back in those days, they had good guys and bad guys in wrestling, right? And and Andre was not just a bad guy. He was like a bad, bad guy. Like you say, he wrestled Hulk Hogan. Still the greatest wrestling event ever. That, but um, And then the thing was, okay, there were these other bad guy wrestlers, and they were called the Machines, and they wore masks. There was Super Machine, and that was Bill Eady, I think it was. And then Big Machine was Blackjack Mulligan. And so they, they were just... It was, a, it was a, a gimmick, right? They were like this tag team, right? And then they brought in a third machine, giant machine. And it was Andre the Giant with a mask on. Like everybody knew it was Andre the Giant. Like, I mean, looks different than everybody other human being on the planet, right? And right. so then there's that scene in Prince in The Princess Bride when, when Fezzik says, he goes, I don't trust men in masks. And it's an inside joke about his wrestling career. Like I say, at the time he, sa he saw that and the, the audience laughs, you know, when, when we're there. But, you know, watching it now, you would have no idea what that line means. It's just some throwaway because that movie because the movie is dropping lines like crazy. Right. Mm -hmm. And but that's just one. I just wanted to fill you in just as a Gen Xer for what it's worth. It's just a neat little. Yeah, definitely Easter would not egg. have caught that one. Uh, yeah. Wrestling is the one thing even as a child I never got into. Uh, my older brother, who's two years older than I am, and he was a lot bigger than I was. He still is. But um, he he kind of went through that wrestling bug where he just constantly wanted to do like wrestling moves on me. And uh, hurt me pretty bad a couple times. I'm not gonna lie. Like always trying to do like uh, just you know the most like insane wrestling moves and stuff. But I've I've always had like a very uh, tepid relationship with wrestling. I I'd, I'd mostly stay away. But um, I it's too bad because if you did like um, uh, wrestling in any possible way, one of the things that I was thinking of doing sometime. You know how we go we go and we do our top five lists. Um, I always wanted to do a top five list of my top five favorite jobbers. The jabronis, the guys that have to like go in the ring and like lose. Because from Gen X, I've got a couple guys that I think I would just be hilarious to talk with. Maybe we'll try and reach out to somebody to have them come on as a wrestling kind of guy. We can talk about jobbers. I don't know. But I mean, you you probably oh, would. Maybe I'd have to do it maybe sometime <laughs> if you're away. If you go away yeah, on I'm vacation, then I'll bring on a guest. If you're ever on vacation, I'll bring on a guest and we'll talk about uh, jobbers. I'll bring on a millennial who likes wrestling. So, this sounds like uh, something I would gladly uh, sit out on. Any of, <laughs> any of our good friends that, that listen to this podcast and are good friends with us, shoot me a message 
and let me know because if you're a millennial wrestler and you, you want to come in and do a show on jobbers, I'll do it with you. So the, I'll just put that out there. Um, but you, you were mentioned about how it's sort of perfectly cast and it was all sort of perfectly thought out. So the, the, it's, it's based on a book, obviously. This movie is based on a book by William Goldman. And it was like from 1973. And so the movie, like, or so the book was very, very popular. A lot of people liked the book, right? And so obviously a lot of people read the book and said, oh, this would make a great movie. And it took you know, a long time. It took, you know, 15 years for them to make a movie out of it. So it went through many incarnations where people had bought the rights and couldn't get it made and all this. And at one point back in the seventies, they were going to make it a movie and they wanted to get Arnold Schwarzenegger to play Fezzik. And this is back when Schwarzenegger was just a bodybuilder. He wasn't even really much of an actor yet. Right. But uh, then Rob Reiner. Now you are obviously familiar with who Rob Reiner is, I'm assuming, or do you not? Yes. Yes. Intimately. Okay. So Rob Reiner, obviously, you know, son of Carl Reiner. And, uh, but he directed, um, this is Spinal Tap that I made you watch on a previous podcast, right? So Rob Reiner directed Spinal Tap and because he directed Spinal Tap and then right after Spinal Tap, he made another movie called The Sure Thing. And it was, it was with John Cusack. And those two movies basically gave him a lot of goodwill with the studio. Okay, so they really liked him. They said, oh, man, you, you make some pretty good movies. You know what I mean? And, and uh, so as a result, the studio basically went to him and said, okay, for your next movie project, you can make any movie you want. You name it. You make the movie, whatever you want. And so he had read the Goldman book back when he was younger, and he always wanted to make it into a movie. So that's what he did. That was his next project was this movie. And um, yeah, and then so when it came, so he had a lot of time to kind of think about, you know, the movie and think about, you know, who he wanted to cast in the movie. But um, the, like we talked before about Danny DeVito, you know, being the first choice to play one of the parts. But, you know, Mandy Patinkin, who played Inigo Montoya. Yes. Rob Reiner went to him originally and said, you can play any character in the movie you want. Pick the character. Pick whatever character you want in this movie and you can play him. That's dangerous if he says Princess Buttercup. Yeah, exactly. That would have been a very, very different movie, <laughs> especially back in 87, right? Um, but he ended up picking Inigo Montoya that he wanted to play because Mandy Patinkin's father had just died from, I think it was pancreatic cancer he had just recently. So he felt this really strong connection to that character, right? So then he ended up doing that. Um, is there any aspects of the movie that you didn't like or that you, you know, any critiques that we have of it rather than just saying you know, it's great? I went back and forth because I was really distracted by the sets. Like, uh, I was like, wow, this looks really fake or wow, that CGI is really bad. Or like the rope climbing scene where they're climbing and they're just like, there's no CGI in it. Legs. I hate just... to break it to you. There's no CGI be... in the movie. No, there's not. But and to be honest with you, though, like I at first it stuck out to me just because like I'm trained to look at that stuff. But then I was like, you know, what? I actually kind of appreciate the fact that they're constantly towing this line between being. Um, like a fantasy in an actual movie. Um, there's not too many elements in this movie that would be like, oh, this is an actual fantasy outside of like the eels or, right. you know, like the, the 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 wizard or whatever he was, the what you Mir know Miracle Max? Crystal's character. Yeah, Mir yeah Miracle Max. Max. Or what about the rodents of unusual size or anything like right. that? Yeah. So like there are elements of like the actual, you know, that or whatever, but it wasn't so out of this world that like I, I was still grounded in the fact that it was a story. You know what I mean? Like it was... Um, so I actually kind of like the fact that they looked like sets, like mm -hmm. Broadway sets, you know, like I, I really did enjoy that. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because when they do a lot of the scenes, like when they're when they're, when they're drinking the Iocane powder and doing that whole thing, that's all outside. Right. But I agree with you. The whole um, sword play thing on the top of them of the Cliffs of Insanity, you could you, when you're watching, you're like, this is a set. You can tell it's a set. It looks like a set. Yep. Exactly like yep. you said. But it doesn't matter because the set isn't the important part. The story is what's important and the characters yeah. are what's important. So it's almost like if you're watching a play, you know, on stage, you don't care. It's what the actors are doing and how they're bringing it to life. That's what matters. And so mm -hmm. <clears throat> if they ever decide that they're going to remake this movie, I will, I tell you, I will protest because it doesn't need all that stuff. It doesn't. It doesn't need great look at sets. They didn't have that much money, even though I just said the studio had said to Rob Reiner, hey, you can make any movie you want. He's like, okay, I want to make, you know. Princess Bride. I want to do Goldman's book. And okay, but we're not giving you much money to do it. So he didn't have very much of a budget. So even in the scene where um, where Humperdinck comes out, played by, uh, by the way, the great, you know, he, oh God, Chris Sarandon is so amazing. We'll talk about him in a second. But so he comes out and he didn't feel that Rob Reiner, the director, didn't feel that the castle looked castle enough. So they actually put in fake turrets and stuff on it to try and make it. So it does look fake. 
you know, because they want mm-hmm. to make it look more regal or whatever, you know, this and that. But that's okay. It adds to the charm of the film, I think. I think it does. It does for me. But, uh, you know, back to Chris Sarandon for a second. So, again, to put things in perspective, like, Chris Sarandon is, like, the ultimate bad guy, right? And he always was. He played a lot of bad guys in movies. And because I always think of him at the time, another he was in another movie in the same year, and it was called Fright Night. And I know you're, as a millennial, you know of Fright Night, because they remade this stupid thing. Um, Colin Farrell, the guy from the stupid lobster movie you made me watch. <laughs> Colin Farrell redid it, right? And, and it was just so dumb, this movie, the remake. But the original... Is so good. And it's on my list of movies I'm going to make you watch one day. So you will. And you'll see Chris Sarandon in that as well. So good, man. He was just such a good bad guy. Even as a bad guy, he's just like, he's almost cartoonish, you know, in his, in his portrayal. But it was just, it was just so good. I don't know. So, so, um, oh, one other thing I wanted to mention too was, um, there's a scene at the end that they shot. And I'm so glad. This is the kind of stuff I love. I love all the behind the scenes stuff. I'm so glad that they cut it from the movie. Because the original ending was a little bit different. And to me, I think it would have just ruined the movie. So they filmed a scene at the, you know, the end when Peter Falk gets up. By the way, Peter Falk, before we get it, was he not great in this? The grandfather? Oh, yeah, he was incredible. Oh, man, wasn't he something else? He was, ah, there's just something about him, his persona, his voice, his mannerisms. He's just like the perfect person to play that part. Very like, believable as perfect. like a grandfather who like wants his grandson's attention and he wants his grandson to like it. But he's also like, he knows how his grandson is and he almost, he almost has to like trick him into liking it yeah. knowing that he'll come around to it. Yeah, and it was perfect. And it's so funny. Cause when they originally cast him to play the part, he, he, he didn't want to do it. Cause he's like, he goes, I'm not, I'm not old enough. He, I think he was 60 at the time. He's like, I'm, I'm too young to be a grandfather. So he wanted to have like prosthetics put on his face to make him look older. And they said, no, no, just be yourself. Just be yourself. Just be you. And I'm glad that they, they did do that. But anyway, so the, the scene that they cut was at the very end, you know, when he gets done and he says, uh, okay, well, that's that's the story. You know, it's time for me to go. And then um, Fred Savage says, well, you know, if you want, you know, you could you can come back tomorrow and read it to me again. And then he says, as you wish. And he leaves, right? End of the movie. But they shot another scene where, where then... Um, Fred Savage's character gets up out of bed and he goes over to the window and he looks out and he sees Fezzik and Inigo and Wesley and Buttercup outside on the white horses. And I'm so glad that they cut that out. I think to me that would have ruined the movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you, how you feel. What do you, like, what do you think? Any thoughts on that? Um, I mean, I, this, this movie is so perfect. Like, even when you mentioned earlier about like doing like a remake, it just makes me question why, you know what I mean? Why would you like possibly change anything? And like the final product itself, it works so well. Like the, the idea of changing it up, I think would just really diminish it. Cause it's like, it's rare that I come into this with, especially with a movie that you have recommended Chris mm-hmm. and, and, and not just nitpick about all kinds of stuff. And I absolutely enjoyed this from top to bottom. So I wouldn't honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. And that's, and that's one of the arguments that I make on a regular basis for not doing remakes. Cause I'm like, it was so good the first time. Why would you mess with it? Like, but for me, that, the ending, if he would have got up out of the bed, went over to the window and saw those characters outside, for me, that would have just, I think it would have ruined the movie because it would have broken that wall between the stories. Yeah. And that wouldn't have worked because the story is a story. That's all it is. The magic he, of this movie is not even the story to me is the, the story of the princess bride. The magic of this movie is a grandfather telling a story to his grandson and how his telling of the story, his storytelling ability allows that story to come to life. You know, I'm so glad they didn't go with that ending. Yeah. I actually was going to say that the, the very thing that you said that it's, it's his ability to like tell the story is what makes it alive. Like, to the boy. So it's almost like a cop out that like, Hey, everybody wins in the end. Like it actually was real. Yeah, and it, exactly. And it cheapens, I would have been like, it, it cheapens oh. the whole imagination of everything, you know? Yeah. I'm glad that you, uh, that you uh, agree with me. So one thing I want to just touch base on too, is you mentioned it and you brought it up was quotes because this movie is, I have some yeah. unbelievably quotable. Like you, you've, you've mentioned up, up until the, the, fa- the time when you actually finally watch this movie you know just like this week that you've heard quotes from the movie i've dropped quotes from the movie all the time like i was dropping quotes you know the other week on the podcast about it and um there are so many this this 
and and gold william goldman not only wrote the book he also did the screenplay it's just so unbelievably well written there's so many good lines and it's just like one after another after another after another of sharp and smart writing i think and and when you have that kind of sharp smart uh script a really really sharp script like that obviously a lot of quotes are going to jump so what are some that jump out at you as a as a millennial watching this for the first time what are some quotes that jumped off the page for you because i got lots I love the one where Princess Buttercup was dreaming or she was having a nightmare and the one that like the town, I don't want to say like hag, but like the one really rough looking woman is like, uh, she's basically calling her like the the queen of slime, the queen of refuse. And like she oh, keeps right. going yeah. over <laughs> <Yep>. and over. <laughs> yeah, I love that part. Um, I loved, uh, where is I wrote it down somewhere, uh, where he says life is pain. Anyone that says anything differently is trying to sell you something. Yes, good line. And I was like, wow, that's powerful. Like yes. I, I want to, you know, tattoo that on my, you know, chest or something, but mm-hmm. I'm not hipster enough. But um, there was that. There's a couple other ones that I can't seem to find in my notes, but what are some that you have? So the most famous quotes from the movie are pro- probably the most famous quote in the movie is my name is Inigo Montoya or Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. That's probably, you know, the most famous, right? Correct. Um, and of course, like inconceivable. And then I love when Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I don't think you that word means what you think it means. Unsavable. Because he says it over and over. I think another really famous line from it is remember when they're having the sword play and they're going on and on and on and on? Because or before before they go into the sword play, Inigo Montoya says to Vicini, I'm gonna do him left handed. I'm because he's just so good of a swordsman. He's like he goes, It wouldn't be fair to him if I if I use my right hand. I would mm. just, I would carve him up. So I, I'm going to do him left-handed. Okay, whatever. So then they're doing it, and then he he realizes, oh my god, this guy's really really good. The Dread Pirate Roberts can really you know use a sword. So then he says, I've got to confess, I'm not left-handed. And then then they start fighting, and he's like beating him back. And then Dread Pirate Robert goes, I have a confession to make too. I'm not left-handed either. And it's just the whole thing turns. Like, I, I like that line. I'm not left-handed either. Um, yep. And, of course, Miracle Max, one of my favorite. He's so good. So uh, Miracle Max, when he's like, have fun storming the castle. <laughs> There's something about that line that I always like, and I use that all the time. Um, the whole character of Miracle Max, so Billy Crystal, basically got into costume, got into his makeup, and just improvised. And just improvised for like two hours. And so, unfortunately, a lot of his improvisation didn't make it into the movie. A lot of it was pretty salty, I think. So, a lot of it didn't make it into the movie. But he just improvised like crazy. And apparently, he had everybody just in stitches. Like, on the set. So, at one point, um, Manny Patinkin, Inigo Montoya, was laughing so hard that he actually bruised a rib from laughing at him. Because he was just (laughs) laughing so much at what what, what, uh, Billy Crystal was doing. But um, and then I would guess I would say the other big quote that you, is as you wish. I think that's a big takeaway for. But but those so those are like the most famous quotes from the movie. But they're not my favorite quotes. One of them is it's like you kind of like some of the smaller part. I love when they're going up to the castle and Wesley says to the there's a gatekeeper there and he says give us the gate key. And the guy goes, I don't have a gate Rip key. his arms off. And yeah. he goes, Fezzik, tear his arms up. Oh, you mean this gate key? <laughs> and he just, I don't know. There's something when he sets that line. It just makes me laugh every single time. Yeah. And then, of course, the one that you mentioned before when uh, Vizzini says, uh, have you ever heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Yeah. Morons. <laughs> like that. That's pretty good. Yeah. Hence and, my intellect. Yeah. And you then, have you, you surely have a dizzying intellect. <laughs> exactly. And I think <laughs> one of the other ones I really like is when – um, the Dread Pirate Roberts knocks out the giant. He knocks out uh, Fezzik and he says, I don't envy the headache you're going to have when you wake up, but for now, rest well and dream of large women. <laughs> and just, that always made me laugh too. Like I, there's just so many lines, like one after the other. And then, of course, my, I think my favorite, not to be corny or anything like that, but I love the line that he says, and they say it over and over again, this is true love. You think this happens every day? Mm-hmm. There's something about I don't know. There's something about the whole thing. Like, like I said, it's it's very rarely do I find that I like. I don't want to say quote unquote chick flicks. You know what I mean? Which this kind of is in a way. It doesn't feel like that to me at but all. Yeah, it's, it really it's just doesn't. Got so much going on in it that it doesn't even qualify. But kind of like even like the little boy in it, I find like every time I watch it, I f- I feel like I'm that little boy too. Because mm-hmm. it's like oh, I don't want to watch this kissing movie. You know, my wife wants to watch these things, but. 
you, you just get sucked in and it's just so magical from start to finish. So I have, I have one more question to ask you. Of course. Yeah. But um, can you think of three other movies or, or, or one or two, however many um, that you feel like closely resembles this movie? So like a bunch of movies stuck out to me as I was watching this is like, Oh wow. This was ob- like the princess bride was a huge, like, um, you know, influence on them. Can you think of any films like that? Ooh, so, so it, I've always thought this, I'm really, really, anxious to hear what you're going to say because I've always felt that this movie is so original. Like I said, going back to my original point that I made at the beginning of the show, that it incorporates a little bit of everything. It incorporates, you know, like comedy and action and adventure and and all that stuff wrapped up into one. I don't think any other movie compares to it. It doesn't have all those things going on. No, so. I mean, I mean, like other movies that you think pulled from this movie. Oh, that other saying? movies that, that have used been this movie as an influence. Yeah. Oh, that have been influenced by this movie. Um, I can give you a couple. While give me you a couple because I can't think of any off the top of my head. Maybe someone come to mind. Go ahead. Okay, and I'm saying this from like an endearing standpoint because I love these films. But um, so Monty Python and the Holy Grail. They, I, I know that one probably came first. It, it but came out. It came out before this. Yeah, so they, they, they feel very similar to me. Um, mm-hmm. That's a little bit more like overt comedy. Like it's, you know what I mean? It's, right. it's less clever. It's more kind of in your face. But a lot of the same parallels, the same time period kind of thing. Uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, again, kind of loosely based on the same thing. And Carrie, always, o- Carrie always is in that, in that too, isn't he? Um, I believe so. I, yeah. I can't remember. I've only seen Robin Hood, Men in Tights, I think, once or twice. Yeah, like I'm, pretty in my sure, life, I'm pretty but... sure Wesley's in that movie. And the third one is Shrek. I I yeah, I, felt, I can see that you know, now you mentioned. I yeah. I love Shrek. I just thought like the like I said the humor is there. Uh there's actually a lot going on with Shrek where thematically like it makes it a incredibly rewatchable film. Like uh, you know, it's not even one of my favorite films, but every time it's on I will rewatch it. And like I could see it being like that with this movie where it's it's such a simple story, but it's also like a really unique story and there's just so much clever like even as you're mentioning like quotes and stuff like that, like I kind of heard them while I was watching the movie, but just hearing you like replay them back to me, it's like you know there are things about this movie that I missed, and I I want to jump back into it and rewatch it. But um, can you think of any other movies like that 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 obviously pulled this movie as like a an influence or a reference? No, nothing comes to mind. You know, I'm thinking of it as you're mentioning those movies, and I agree that I think you know those ones did, with the exception of uh, Monty Python because that came out before. But no, nothing like really jumps out at me. That's fair. Yeah, like I can't think of anything that kind of pulled through. I think I think the problem is is that to if you homage this movie in any way, it's just so obvious that you are that maybe that's why a lot of people don't. I don't know. That's just my thought. I haven't seen anything else that's been quite like it, or that's even reminded me of it a whole lot. But the the, the ones that you give are good though. Okay. But anyway, so uh, you want to so like before we go on to any trivia, do you want to give it a rating out of ten? What would you say? Uh, so it's, it's original, it's entertaining, it's thoughtful, it's funny. Uh, the casting is amazing. Um, it's rewatchable for sure. It's just super rewatchable. I think even though I've only seen it once, I want to watch it again. Yeah. You can tell like, and that's what I'm, what I always mention over and over again, you know, on this show about all those movies that are rewatchable to me. Yeah. I can watch this movie a hundred thousand times. Like it just, I can watch it over and over again. So I, I understand why this is such a cult classic, why I've heard it referenced so many times. Like I have friends that have Princess Bride tattoos and, mm-hmm. you know, they're constantly quoting this stuff, whatever. Like I'm, I'm going to give it like a really solid nine, like a 9.0. Yeah. It is um, just a really charming, endearing movie uh, that, like you said, it's kind of something for everybody, like adults, kids, everything like that. I, I can't see myself as a child not enjoying this. I couldn't see myself growing out of this if I grew up with it. I've never seen it before. You know, we, we did the show or whatever, but just a really, really good movie. So I'll give it like a really solid nine for the first time in the history of the podcast 71 episodes i agree with you 100 and i also give it a nine is this what it takes for you to be proud of me just yeah well like i said if, if you would have come into this with this movie and said i didn't like this movie we were breaking up it's over but um, you know, you <laughs> redeemed yourself because you love this movie. Again, how can you not like the movie? I mean, it's just so incredibly likable. You know, that's the whole point of the film, right? So, okay, time now to have some fun with Yancey. Okay, it's over to you, my friend. Uh, this I nominated this movie, so now I guess I, you got to put my put me on the chopping block here and give me some trivia. So, uh, what do you got? Okay, per the usual, um, you knocked out a lot of them by just talking about the film. Obviously, you know a lot. 
Uh, that's not a secret. That's well established in like the history of the show. Like Chris knows a lot about these movies, and to his credit, like he actually goes in and like researches them and like learns about them and knows links between different movies and actors and directors and stuff. So well done on your part. Um, so first question, it's a really easy one. Uh, what year was The Princess Bride released? In 1987. And it was based off of the book. Yeah. What year was the book released? Uh, the book came out in 1973. Okay, I thought you might not get the book. I knew you'd definitely get the movie, obviously, but so well done. Okay, so William Goldman, uh, he won two Oscars for Best Writing. Can you name the two films that he won them for? Obviously, he directed this film as well. Man, just trying to think with Butch Cassidy and All the President's Men, I'll go with those two. Yep, you nailed it. Yes. Two for two. Oh, I think yeah. I said directed. I think I just meant wrote. No, he wrote I think you know you said writing. You said writing. Okay, so. sorry. All right, so um, Robin Wright, the lovely, talented Robin Wright, can you name the year in which she was born? And I'll give you a hint. Uh, I yeah, read it, my parents a lot in this show. This is the same year that they were born. It is also the year that the shoe Vans first was created. What oh, is nice. the year? Well, she was 21 when she made this in 1987, so that would put her back to 1966. Well done. Ooh. Very well done. Math is good. Okay. So let me ask you, we, we talked about Rob Ryan a little bit. Uh, yes. Oh, Rob that guy Reiner. has that guy has some work, man. You want to talk about just how many different things he's a part of as, as an actor, a director, a writer, just has his hands in all kinds of different projects. Really impressive. Uh, can you name the film that he directed before The Princess Bride and also after The Princess Bride? The um, two films immediately sandwiching The Princess Bride. So I will say, would Stand By Me? Stand by Me is one. Yeah, Stand by Me came out before because yeah, because he. I mentioned the sure thing in Spinal Tap. He did Stand by Me, and right after it, I think he did Misery, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Uh, it's actually when Harry met Sally. Oh, when Harry met he Sally, of course. Yeah. Oh, misery man. was right there too, though. As I looked it oh, up, um, yes. I think you were one film off. But oh, yes. so close. Still pretty impressive, though. Still have credit. Yeah. Okay, so the quote: "His eyes are like the sea um, after a storm." That's what she references talking about. Uh, her love I, I actually forgot his name too was it wesley wesley, or? wesley yep um west wesley like west and then lee west lee wesley right? yep so she, once again she says his eyes are like the sea after a storm that is a reference to what oh I in real life i i don't know uh it is actually a painting by the same name by the irish painter francis darby that was created in 1824 oh how can i not know that <laughs> I, I assumed, honestly, Chris, I assumed that you would have looked it up. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know how many times I write down questions and I'm like, surely he won't get this. And then surely <laughs> Boom, I did. drop it. Yeah. Okay. I got another one about Andre the Giant. Oh, sure. Andre right. the Giant. So this is tangential to the actual movie itself because I've, 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 I've had to become more creative with these. If I'm just reading off you know, trivia and stuff online, you're going to get it if it's directly relating to the movie. But Andre the Giant, he played a pivotal part in this, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned him wrestling against uh, Hulk Hogan, you know, very, very famous wrestler. Unfortunately, he died when he was, I think, 47 or 48. Yeah. Um, he was, however, inducted into the World Wrestling Entertainment Hall of Fame. Can you name the year that he was inducted into said Hall of Fame? Uh, I'll guess the same year he died. I'll say 93. It was 1993. Oh, yes. I I had to take a guess on that one. (laughs) That's hilarious. Okay. um, Can you name the actor who played the albino? Oh, Robbie. Was it Robbie Coltrane? It was Mel Smith. Oh, Mel Smith. Oh, Mel Smith. Oh, I was thinking Robbie Coltrane. Weirdly enough, I didn't mention this. I know we're in trivia now, but I did not realize at the time that it was Billy Crystal that played the the miracle guy. It was him and Carol Kane in those in those roles. Yeah. That was hilarious. One, um, one other thing I just want to mention, if I could just jump in for a second, because we didn't mention yeah, sure. it. And I think this is something that's lost in this movie because it happens during the credits is the song Storybook Love that's done by I Willie. Love Willie. The soundtrack it's so too. good. So Willie DeVille and Mark Knopfler, Mark Knopfler, the guitar player from Dire Straits, obviously, they teamed up and they did this song Storybook Love at the end. It was up for an Oscar for best song. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, didn't win because I've had the time of my life from Dirty Dancing kind of swept that one. But um, it came out the same year, so you're going to beat it, right? But I just, and, and, and that song, like like elements and the melody of that song are woven as an instrumental throughout the movie. And that song is really, really good. So anybody that, that wants to, you just go and you can find it on YouTube or something like that. But Storybook Love, the, uh, the song by Willie DeVille and Mark Knopfler, it's really, really, really good. I did not know that he had a part in this. Yep. I will say this, Dire Straits, criminally underrated. Sultans of Swing, probably one of the greatest guitar songs of all time. I don't I know agree. how you feel about that. I, I agree um, with you 100%. 
and you know what's weird? I actually wrote that in my notes too, talking about. I know we're running super long, but no, okay. uh, I, I even wrote about the the music to it. It sounds like 16-bit, like something you would you would uh, hear on like the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Like that's what the music sounded like to me. It was like I, I really enjoyed it. I just thought it was like very like video gamey, like fairy tale, almost like Zelda ish. You know what I mean? I just thought it worked really really well. But I just kind of wanted to mention that. Um, let me see if I have any other trivia questions real quick. We haven't answered. Uh, the two rival kingdoms in the movie, can you name them? Uh, Gilder and... Oh, the other one escapes me. I just always think of Gilder. I know you know it. It's Florin. Florin! Ah, yes. You would have gotten there for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. It was actually the name of two former Dutch currencies, the Florin and the Gilden. Um, ah, that's so cool. Um, can you name the powder that was the fictional poison um, that was... You know, used inside the film. Well, Can you name the name of well, the poison? Well, well, being as the Dread Pirate Roberts, you know, spent uh, years building up an, an immunity to it, I should know that it's Iocane powder. Iocane, correct, yes. which is not real. No, but. it's yeah, make believe. <laughs> Um, I think that does it, Chris. Uh, I had a lot more of these. Um, can you name any famous actress that auditioned or at least put her name in for Princess Buttercup? There are three big names um, that you might be able to get. Mm, I'm just trying to think. Would like Meg Ryan be one? Meg Ryan is one. Oh, good. So there we go. I'm just trying to think of any because because again, like at the time, um, Robin Wright was was unknown. She was an unknown mm-hmm. actress, right? Um, but so was Carrie Elwes. Um. I don't know. I don't know. Meg Ryan, I can't think of anybody else. Who... Meg Ryan was a fantastic guest. Uh, Courtney Cox was another that auditioned oh, okay. for the role. Okay, very cool. And they also said Uma Thurman, but she was turned out immediately because they said she was too exotic looking. So apparently yeah. they were looking for a very, um, you know, Aryan, blonde hair, blue eyed, right. you know, like your typical princess, whatever. But um, right. I thought that was pretty interesting. But very nice job, as always. You kind mm-hmm. of outclass uh, me when it comes to the trivias. And uh, the streak continues. So nice yep. job. And, and, and just one thing, too, on the title, because it's, it's a very interesting title. The Princess Bride. You know, like what an interesting thing. You know where that where that came from? William Goldman, when he was writing the book, uh, he he said to his to his two daughters, "What should I write my next book on?" And his one daughter said, "You should write it on a princess," and the other one said, "You should write it on a bride." So he said, "I'll call it the Princess Bride. I'll do both." And simple enough. Very simple, and wrote the book. But uh, definitely a good movie. I'm really glad. So I just got thinking about something, and we'll wrap it up with this. When you were mentioning about um, when I mentioned Mark Knopfler, and you were like Dire Straits, such a great guitar song. How about this? Next week we got to do a top five list. So how about this? Top five guitar solos of all time. What do you think? Guitar solos. Guitar solos. Guitar solos. Wow, that's going to take a lot of work. I love it, though. I right? Because I love it. that song, because as soon as you mentioned it, I thought, oh, my God, that is such a good good guitar song. It's got such a great solo in it. It's just so, so, he's just got so much feeling going on in that song. And I'm trying to think, oh, that's one that got to be one of the best guitar solos I think I've ever heard. I want, so now I'm thinking, I think we should do guitar solos. What do you think? Um, I am so down for a music-centric We pocket. need to do music. I know you like music, so let's do it. All right? So and so as I mentioned at the top of the show, you want to reach us on Twitter at C McBrien, at Yancey Eaton, popgoesyourworld.com for all of our contact information. On behalf of Yancey Eaton, this is Chris McBrien saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 